Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. One of the great things about pathology as a field is that there are so many interesting subfields within it. And one of those that we haven't covered yet on the podcast is digital pathology. Today, my guest is Dr. Alexandra Zuroff. She is a veterinary pathologist and a digital pathology expert. We'll talk about how she got interested in digital pathology and how the rest of us can learn about it as well. We'll talk about her blog and her own podcast, The Digital Pathology Podcast. Now, here's Dr. Alexandra Zuroff. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, the first time I'm being a guest on a podcast. Usually I interview people as well. Oh, all right. Well, this is fun then. All right. I'm glad to, I'm glad to be first. Well, let's start way back at the beginning. And then you, you're originally from Poland. Is that right? Yes, I'm originally from Poland. I'm okay. from Poland. I mean, I don't know where I would be not originally from. I spent most of my life there. And then I lived in a couple of other countries. Actually, now, now I'm in the U.S. And this is the sixth country I've uh, been living in. But now with my family here, I'm going to be staying here or at least being between Poland and the U.S. And yes, I studied in Poland. Okay, so you studied veterinary medicine in Poland. I'm curious, how did you first become interested in uh, veterinary medicine? I read the book, All Creatures Great and Small, when I was 12 by James Harriet. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to become a cattle vet, cattle veterinarian. I wanted to treat large animals. And that was my dream since I was 12. And that's why I became a veterinarian. And then I actually worked as a practitioner in a cattle practice for two years, two and a half years. Okay. Did, did you enjoy doing that? I did, but it is, so I loved it. I loved being outdoors. I loved being with animals. It was kind of a, um, I was doing it in the west of Poland in an area where there's a national park and we have cows that are free range there. The farmers have the contract with the national park to just let the cows graze there. And it was kind of a wild, wild west version of Polish uh, veterinary medicine, Polish field veterinary medicine. And I loved it, but I also love to travel. I love to be flexible. And uh, I don't like when it's cold in the winter. And there was a lot of outdoors work in the winter with cattle. So these were the, the factors that weigh in when I was later considering and maybe doing something else. Right, this is kind of a weird question. If the cows are, or the cattle are free range, how do you, how do you catch them to examine them? You drive to them. Well, you could, uh, in the U.S., you probably would use horses. We would drive to them. Uh, we would anesthetize them with uh, with a gun. We would shoot them. Uh, we would shoot at them with an anesthetic to uh, tranquilize them. And then okay. we would only approach. So they were really wild animals. You know, I, I saw an interview with, with you, I think it was on, a, on YouTube. And you mentioned that you first got introduced to veterinary pathology during a course you took in Spain. That's so, correct. All right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me this story then? How did you discover this course? In how, how, like, how did you decide you were going to go to Spain uh, for a pathology course? Mm -hmm. So it was not really just strictly pathology course. Uh, it was an exchange I did in Spain. I spent a year there. It was an Erasmus exchange program. 
and I think it's more popular in Europe than here in the US, you go and study in another country for a year. And you continue your degree and you get your credits, you just continue your studies, but in another country. So I did that and I chose Spain because Spain is cool and it's warm. And I also wanted to learn Spanish because learning languages is uh, another passion of mine. Yes. Uh, and we went to Spain uh, with two other students, uh, friends of mine. And what happened there is that they were in the middle of a curriculum uh, change, curriculum reform, so to say, at the faculty. So the students, uh, the Erasmus students, the exchange students needed to have some credits covered, but there was no uh, course given at the time. So what happened, we got uh, a private course and pathology happened to be one of the subjects that was not offered at the time because of the transition because all the local students already had that course and the new ones didn't have to have yet have this course yet uh, so we the Erasmus exchange group was the only group that needed the course so the faculty uh, decided to offer it to us just as a private course so okay. it was I think maybe eight of us and we got private pathology course and uh, because we had so much attention from the professor, who, by the way, was a diplomat of uh, European College of Veterinary Pathologists, this was also my first encounter with this specialization. This is not really something we have in Poland in that form, uh, residency programs and, and the formal, uh, formal education uh, to become a diplomat later when you pass the boards. Um, but at that time, I got introduced both to pathology and I liked it a lot. But it was never something that I thought I could do for a living because we don't really have veterinary pathologists as such in Poland. The only veterinary pathologists in Poland are uh, working for the faculties, for the four or now maybe five veterinary faculties that we have in Poland. And they are at the universities and are giving classes and doing some research uh, at the university. And this is not really what I wanted to do, even though I loved pathology. So. Only in Spain, I learned that, okay, in Europe, it works a little bit different. It's more structured. And this is actually a legitimate veterinary profession. But at that point, I still wanted to be a cow vet. So it kind of, I kind of put it on the back burner as something that, you know, I liked. I was good at. It was, I think, the first course that I was actually good at in veterinary school, like, really without too much effort. For the rest, I really had to study some, quite some more than, you know, you do in high school. And, mm -hmm. But pathology was a little bit more easy for me and I liked it. How long was, was this course? This course was for the whole year, for the whole year uh, that mm -hmm. we spent there in, um, in Spain. Okay. And it was all, was it all pathology? Or was it other uh, specialties as well? Uh, for the exchange, we had all the other subjects that you usually would uh, have in the veterinary school. So everything that was, um, it was my fourth year of vet school in Poland. These are six years of vet school that we did. So we had infectious diseases, we had surgery, we had uh, animal nutrition, and uh, I don't know, all the other courses that you have during your fourth vet school year in Poland. And pathology was one of them. So once a week, we would have a pathology class, this private pathology class with necropsies, with demonstrations. And uh, we also had to give presentations. So it was a lot more active than just listening to lectures and learning something by heart. So then after that, so then you go back to Poland, right? And you're, and you're practicing as, as a vet? 
Yes. So then I go back to Poland. I still have one and a half year of vet school left. So I finish my studies and then I start to practice uh, veterinary medicine in this um, cattle practice and later in a mixed animal practice for two and a half year, more or less. How did you then discover digital pathology? Because this is a pretty large focus of what you do now. Uh, so I'm curious how that began. Mm-hmm. So the transition from being a practitioner to starting doing pathology, which is more research oriented, um, was so my initial plan was to finish vet school, go to work for two years in the thing that I imagined is going to be what I'm going to be doing forever, which was uh, cattle practice, and see how can I um, develop my expertise better. So my plan was to find a PhD program after two years of practicing. I didn't want to stay at the university immediately after finishing. I wanted to see how it actually is to be a vet and then keep learning. So at the point where where I already was making this decision, okay, I want to do a PhD because um, this is to enhance your research expertise. And uh, But I also wanted to specialize. And then I looked at the, there is um, a list of specialties for veterinary medicine. This is uh, the European Veterinary Specialty Board, I think. Um, and you have different lists of different specialties. So I went through the list and I was eliminating what I don't want to do. So poultry medicine, I didn't want to do internal medicine, I didn't want to do, and so on. And there were two things left, pathology and horses. Uh, actually, by then I was already over cows. I thought, okay, maybe I can do horses. I was riding horses and loved horses. So these two things stayed. And I uh, managed to get into a six-week program to go to Berlin, to the Free University of, Brit- of Berlin okay. uh, for an exchange. I started my PhD program in uh, at the university in Poland, but then I got this chance to go for this six weeks exchange. And I was supposed to uh, spend three weeks uh, at the pathology department and three weeks in the horse clinic. And I went to the pathology department for those three weeks and then I canceled the horse clinic. I just stayed in pathology. Oh wow! I learned even more that this is a legitimate profession. You can do it for a living and it is being done. And I was surrounded by people who were doing this and learned different you know, options you can take when you're becoming a pathologist. Never looked back. So that's three countries now. We've got Poland, we've got Spain, we've got Germany now. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. So, so, so what happened from there? <laughs> yeah. So then digital pathology. Ask me how I got involved into digital pathology, which is my passion now. Kind of by accident. Um, So my first encounter with digital pathology was during my PhD. But it was other people who were doing digital pathology. And it was mostly for illustrative purposes. We had an Aperio whole slide scanner there at the faculty. And there were, so to say, the chosen residents that had access to this. And I was not the chosen one. So my first impression was, okay, there is this tool, but it's not really available for everyone. So, you know, I I was aware, but I was not really using it. And then my first job after my PhD happened, which happened to be in a digital pathology company. It was an image analysis company where I joined to be the first pathologist to take care of um, 
the quality of the image analysis that was being developed by computer scientists. Okay. And this is this was my first encounter. Uh, encounter. It was I didn't know anything about digital pathology before, but then I started working with those people and uh, seeing where I can provide value, and it was intuitive to me and it was fun, and that's why I stuck with it. Okay, so then working with those people, like what did you learn fr- from that experience? Um, I learned from that experience that there is a gap between the computer scientists and uh, pathologist expertise when designing a digital image analysis, tissue image analysis. And to have better image analysis and to leverage digital pathology and image analysis for better science and later maybe for better patient care, better drug development, you need to bridge the gap. And then you have a good team that works together and develops good solutions that are moving, uh, that are driving the science forward. You know, I've seen, not, not so much in the digital pathology realm, but just other like lab information systems and things like that. Like you, you can tell sometimes that someone in the field wasn't really involved because they're not very user-friendly or the things that you need to do on a day-to-day basis are uh, like more difficult than they should be. Is that the kind of things you were you were trying to do with the image analysis uh, people? Exactly, definitely. This is a reflection where you have a, a siloed approach to development of products, uh, in my case, digital pathology products or solutions for an audience, for a group that was not involved in uh, designing them by a group that doesn't know what's most important for the users. So this is exactly the gap that I'm talking about. And I was not aware of this gap before I joined the company. I didn't know anything about software development, about algorithm development. But then I was part of this, and it was easy to spot that this disconnection just um, causes the products and the solutions not to be optimal. After this experience, what where, where did you go from there? Mm, so I spent over two years, two and a half years at the company. And at some point, um, I wanted to move on to learn more pathology and not just do the digital part of pathology. Okay. Um, so I moved to um, Charles River Laboratories, where I became a toxicologic pathologist. And I was actually a little bit afraid that this digital pathology component is going to go away. And because uh, the new job was in Canada, I had to wait a little bit to have my uh, documents all uh, processed. So in the meantime, it was a couple of months in between the jobs, I started my blog. The blog mm-hmm. called, it was called Digital Pathology Consulting at the beginning, then the name changed to Digital Pathology Place. And this was to keep me attached to the digital pathology part of pathology. Because I was kind of afraid that, okay, I'm going to join the largest CRO for Toxpath, toxicologic pathology. And I don't know how very much digital pathology friendly they are. So how about I just have this anchor and keep developing myself in this area and also providing value to people who might find it useful. And I was very happy to see that I was wrong. Charles River is very digital pathology friendly. And uh, since the moment I joined, I was involved in many digital pathology projects. So this is great. But mm-hmm. basically, the blog was my way to stay attached to the field that I developed a passion for. Okay. Yeah, I want to talk about the blog for a little bit. But first, I, I want to know, how is, how is digital pathology used in veterinary medicine? I mean, is it 
use for primary diagnosis or is this like more of a consultation type of thing? In veterinary medicine, it's it has many aspects. Like you say, primary diagnosis, which actually was something that was first developed or full-blown in veterinary medicine in contrast to human medicine because of the lower regulatory burden that we have. So the first systems uh, for primary diagnosis that were digital were uh, in veterinary medicine. So that's one thing. Consultations, that's a no-brainer. You can use it, you know, for any aspect of pathology. Now you can even use it. It's still digital pathology, even though not official when you use your smartphone and send pictures to your colleagues. So that as well. But there are also other aspects like drug development. This is a huge area where veterinary pathologists are involved. And this is what I'm doing now. I'm a toxicologic pathologist, basically checking for in the studies that are done for drug development, whether the candidate drugs cause some problems or not. And this is where digital pathology can be used both for primary read, so primary evaluation, and for consultation and the consultation in ToxPath. Uh, if it's the official consultation, it's called peer review. So many studies are peer reviewed before they uh, move farther along the pipeline of drug development. So for these two aspects, and obviously for image analysis. And there are a huge amount of slides that veterinary pathologists are looking at, and most of them are not, uh, they don't have changes because you are uh, screening different groups of animals that got different treatments. And often the only changes are in the treatment group that got the highest dose of the drug or the drug candidate. So before that, all the groups may not have any changes. So 90% of the slides you're reviewing are going to be without changes, but you still have to look at them. So now this is an area of active research, how to help pathologists to um, streamline that process, to have it faster, to screen for abnormalities. And this is what we're also involved in at Trout River. Is digital pathology in veterinary medicine, is that subject to the same regulations and like validation requirements that uh, digital path would be in in human medicine? Mm, Not to the same. So it depends at which level. At uh, the level of uh, primary of diagnostics, not really. The regulatory burden is low. But when you move into the drug development space and you are working within more regulated um, environments, for example, uh, good laboratory practice compliant environments, GLP, there you have uh, requirements for qualification, validation, and verification of any computerized systems and digital pathology systems uh, are under this computerized system umbrella. So if you want to be GLP compliant, then yes, you do have to uh, do a lot of regulatory preparation to be able to provide these services in this environment. We'll get back to our interview with Dr. Alexander Zurov right after this. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Dress-A-Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. 
The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. And now back to Dr. Alexander Zuroff on the People of Pathology podcast. Back to the blog then that you mentioned already. It's called Digital Pathology Place, uh, which I will link in the show notes as well. Now, you said you started the site when you when you went to Charles River to keep kind of one foot in the digital pathology realm. Uh, was that like the original purpose of the blog then, just to for your own sort of uh, interest in digital pathology? It was the origin kind of to keep me there, but the goal of the blog was uh, to bridge the gap that I was bridging at my first uh, digital pathology job. Okay. So this was my my purpose for the whole website. Okay, and then so so how did you decide like what things you wanted to write about there? Or I know you you've even reviewed some products and and things like that. How, how did you come up with those things? Mm-hmm. So there, my categories would be okay. Do I solve a problem that I had with this post? Do I solve a problem that somebody told me about? Or is it in any other way relevant to my audience? And my audience is, again, the people who need to have this gap bridged, which is going to be on one side, and that's going to be computer scientists who want to work in the digital pathology space, and on the other side, pathologists and life scientists who also work in this uh, space, but on the other um, end of the spectrum, so to say. Mm-hmm. When you started uh, doing the blog and, and writing these posts, like what kind of feedback did you get from from the readers? Did did people enjoy it? Did they have suggestions for things or, or, or what? I was uh, not really getting direct feedback, but uh, what I like later at some point uh, at this journey, in this journey, I looked at, uh, what people are reading, and my um, most helpful post, for example, is the six free open source software programs for image analysis of pathology slides. So uh, I looked at what I was writing there and what got the most most downloads or most uh, visits uh, for the website. So kind of that was indirect from okay, people are, are searching for this kind of content. That kind of gave me feedback. And then, um, you know, blog was the initial form of content that I had. And then I expanded. I expanded to other forms of content. I expanded to the podcast. And now I'm expanding into YouTube video tutorials. And uh, it's not really the, the, it's not really separated anymore like that, that, okay, blog posts are only a tutorial like something that uh, people need a solution for. But it kind of, it is kind of intertwined at the uh, at the moment. You mentioned the the YouTube tutorials. Now on your site, you can uh, sign up for your newsletter, and then you get access to the uh, your digital pathology crash course, which is free, and that's a set of three YouTube tutorial videos. So I want to talk about that because I you know I watch those and those they're they're very interesting. Why did you decide to create this course? Uh, thanks for watching, first of all, and so. I was asked uh, several times to give presentations. It was uh, on two conferences and then on several webinars and several internal trainings to give a presentation on the introduction to digital pathology. And especially 
uh, March last year when COVID hit, uh, everybody was suddenly more interested in this subject. So I ended up giving, I don't know, in total, maybe seven presentations about this two at international conferences. So that was a hint clear enough to me that, okay, people need this knowledge. And even though I already have given it this year, there's always going to be people entering this field. So how about I just make this course available for everybody who's interested? And that's how uh, I came up with the idea and the material in this course is a lot of what I was talking during those uh, webinars and conferences. Okay. And how long did it take you to put these three videos together? I don't know. Well, those three three videos at the end it was already a result of a lot of more preparation that I did for the other instances where I presented this. So, like the end end work was not so so time consuming. Maybe a couple of days to have it polished enough to to and make videos of it. Um, up front, I don't know. Maybe couple of weeks of research of uh, and also a little bit of uh, iterations between the different presentations that I gave where people would uh, tell me okay how about you talk about this how about you talk more about something else so that was a little bit of um, feedback I got after the presentation and then this ended up in the course as we mentioned, there's three videos. I want to talk a little bit about the second one because that's, first of all, that's the longest one. And it's also my favorite of the three because you explain a lot of informatics topics or concepts and then how they apply to digital pathology. Because I feel like a lot of people, when you start looking at digital pathology, there's all these concepts that, and all these new words and, and phrases and things. And it's very overwhelming at first. So can we talk about some of those concepts? I mean, you go a lot into image analysis, uh, things like AI and Mm -hmm. and the the different types of machine learning. Definitely. So like you say, the second video is about image analysis. And uh, it's the longest because it has, it's most packed with content that is necessary for people who are starting working in the image analysis, tissue image analysis area to understand upfront to be able to provide value to the image analysis team. So as a pathologist or life scientist, you already have vital expertise. And and, you you join the team and it should be pretty self-explanatory that just with your expertise, you can provide this value. But actually you do need to learn some concepts um, and language to be able to convey your expertise and also to understand what the other side is doing. So again, we're back to the gap that I want to bridge. Uh, We need some background knowledge as well as the uh, computer scientists need some background knowledge to understand each other well. And this is what this video is about. And like you said, I, I provide a lot of concepts. I provide a lot of definitions there. But uh, it's divided into two main points. It's about image analysis in general, and then it's about artificial intelligence and machine learning, which has been booming in the last two years in pathology. Right. So, you know, I'm not going to talk too much in detail about it, but for image analysis, there are a couple of concepts that I would like people to know. And this is that it's a powerful tool, but it's not magic. And what do I mean by that it's not magic? Well, it sometimes it's not something that you press a button and it works you have to develop it 
and you have to sometimes spend significant amount of time developing it. And once you do it right, then it's going to serve you well, but it's not press a button and it works. And then there are two main approaches. Uh, there is the classical image analysis approach and the artificial intelligence based. So classical would be hard crafted features. And what do I mean by that? For example, let's take, we want to quantify um, an IHC stain, Chi-67, which is proliferation marker. And we want to count those brown nuclei that are stained with the marker. We would manually define the intensities of the marker accumulation that we're looking for, the sizes of the cells. So these, all these things we would define um, and write into the code manually. This is handcrafted features. And AI-based, if we wanted to develop an AI-based solution for that, we would just give examples. We would just draw the cells around those cells. We would annotate them and the system would learn uh, on its own how to detect the cells in new images. Okay. Yeah. And then and there is a regulated aspect, uh, a regulated version of those algorithms, which uh, have to be validated in a more stringent way and the research use only applications. And another thing that I emphasize very much is the quality control. This is ties back into the powerful tool, but not magic. Not only do you often spend a lot of time developing it, you do need to spend time controlling the quality of your output because garbage in, garbage out. If you uh, put something in that's uh, not high quality, you will not have high quality output. And this is the role of, this was my role in the image analysis company where I worked. This is the role of the pathologist or the life scientist who's responsible for um, evaluating those outputs later. So that's for image analysis. And for artificial intelligence, if I wanna give a, a quick overview of what's most important there, is the dependencies of different um, disciplines within computer vision. So computer vision is the overarching disciplines, uh, discipline where computers are taught to recognize images and recognize information in images similar to what humans are doing. And there we have the artificial intelligence, which if you imagine this as being a bubble and uh, a bubble that has more bubbles inside that are smaller, artificial intelligence would be the biggest bubble. Then within that, we have machine learning. And a part of machine learning is deep learning. Deep learning is the thing we uh, would use for uh, the example I gave with Chi-67, where we would draw the cells. Right, so okay. these are the dependencies. And then you have um, plenty of different terms that I'm explaining in the course that fit into this these dependencies. Right, yeah, and you go through all of them. And obviously, we don't want to give that all away because we want people to watch the video, but you, you do a really good job of explaining all these uh, different concepts. Yeah, so once you, yeah, when, once you have this overview, you can enter an image analysis team and you are prepared to provide your expertise and people will understand you because you already have some level of common language. And then, obviously, both parties learn from each other, but this is the starting point that can get you quite far into this process. You know, it's funny, you mentioned earlier that, you know, learning languages is one of your passions. And this is kind of, you know, the, the image analysis language is kind of another one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Let's move on then to your podcast, the digital pathology podcast. Now, uh, so what, what inspired you to, to start a podcast? Well, 
the thing that originally inspired me to do a podcast was when I was little with my sister, With we often played radio interviews. So we were taking a cassette recorder, pressing record, and we're interviewing each other about some crazy and funny kids stuff. Okay. And I should actually look up those cassettes and we will probably laugh even more now than when we were recording these things. So this interview format was always there. Uh, and then I developed a certain expertise in digital pathology and realized that this uh, landscape, digital pathology landscape, is very dynamic and is getting more and more complex as new players are appearing in this uh, landscape. So my goal with this was to paint a picture of the digital pathology landscape that is a little bit more structured and a little bit more transparent to the end user of the digital pathology solutions. I wanted to empower my audience to be able to navigate this landscape well. And uh, I interview people from the industry. So it's focused on commercially available solutions or, or research products that are actually available for use for end users. And uh, my goal with the podcast is to clarify how it can be used. So, you know, if you're looking into uh, considering a digital pathology solution of one kind or another, you can look through the podcast episodes that I have and see, okay, oh, this company, I was reviewing products of this company. Let me listen to what they have to say about their product, their story. And one thing is that in the digital pathology world, those providers, those companies are still small. Most of them are startup form. So you're going to be interacting when you are considering a digital pathology solution, you're going to be interacting with those people in person. So the podcast gives you a peek into, okay, is this a person I will maybe feel good to work with? I imagine these, these smaller companies, these startups are very eager to come on the podcast and talk with you about their products. Is that right? I can say that. I mean, I don't have problem recruiting guests for my podcast. Do they provide you with things they want to talk about or do you discuss that with them in advance or, or is it just a completely uh, spontaneous conversation? It's probably a combination. So it's not a spontaneous conversation. Uh, it is structured, com- structured, spontaneous conversation, so to say, because I do have a, a couple of objectives for each interview Uh, Because I want to convey a certain message to my audience. I want to tell them or show them the story of the company, how they got where they are, uh, obviously the products and services that they are offering, and how can they be applied. So basically tangible information. Often uh, this is not something you find on the websites of a company. I want to talk to the people and uh, ask them, Okay, how are you providing value to the audience that I have? And how are you different from your competition, from other people who are doing things in this digital pathology area? What distinguishes you? So I do have a set of structured uh, questions that are obviously customized to each guest that I'm inviting. I mostly focus on industry guests, but I also have some guests who are researchers but, for example, developed an open source uh, software that can be used. So it's mostly focused 
on something that the listeners can later use or can consider using. So like you've got the, the practical aspect of it is like you can listen to the podcast and, and learn things that you can actually use. Mm -hmm. And also I want it to be interesting and fun, right? There's so much, you know, you can read a specification sheet uh, to know all the practical uh, things, but also I want it to be in a, a way that is entertaining to the audience. So you, you ask, how do I recruit the people? Sometimes um, people approach me uh, and then I try to find uh, something within their offering that would fit my goal with the podcast. And usually I do. And uh, sometimes I approach people that I think uh, are doing something very cool and uh, I have not heard enough about what they're doing. So I do want to let my listeners know what that is. And sometimes researchers, like I told you, that have something tangible that can be used. I don't really uh, talk about research as such. I don't really review papers, but I'm considering doing this for a journal club, a YouTube journal club. So hopefully in the next couple of months, you're going to be seeing that on YouTube, where oh, okay. I will be reviewing papers and maybe even um, talking about them with the authors or co-authors of the papers. Oh, okay. That'd be great. I, I look forward to that. All right. It seems like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, the, the role it just seems like it's going to expand in, in the future and probably the near future at that. And I'd like to know how do we, how do we prepare for this? Like, I mean, a pathologist, of course, but also, you know, non-pathologists like me, how do we prepare for this change? Mm -hmm. Well, the best preparation will be to educate ourselves. If we educate ourselves, we will be able to engage in the development. And you mentioned this with other products, with the lab information systems, where you see that they are not really being done with the involvement of the end users. So to prepare for AI and to actually make AI better for us later, we should get involved. And to get involved, we need to have a certain level of knowledge so that we can provide value. We already talked about it in the context of the course, but basically to educate ourselves and educate ourselves in the process. And also, like I mentioned about image analysis, about reviewing the quality of what those AI applications or AI solutions provide. And I'm mostly talking in the context of image analysis, but this applies to any tool. Uh, if you see that something like that is coming your way, if you see that, okay, there is a group discussing something, get involved, uh, or at least, you know, even if you cannot actively get involved, get passively involved in terms of know what they're talking about, see if there is something that you could let them know so that they don't do mistakes. It is a new field. I know we are not really thinking in those terms when it comes to software because nobody's talking to the development team of Microsoft Word to say, hey, this icon should be on the left and not on the right because I have to click too much. Uh, we, we don't have this mindset. Uh, we can totally adopt this mindset for digital pathology and give this kind of feedback uh, if we have the chance. Like I told you, you're going to be working with people pretty closely from the image analysis or digital pathology companies if you're uh, using their solutions. And they are very agile about developing their solutions. So, yeah, we educate ourselves and 
you can use my crash course or you can use uh, plenty of other resources. Actually, I have a podcast episode uh, with uh, one of my guests, Thomas Westerling Bui, where he gives uh, a lot of other resources like books, Coursera courses, uh, some other online courses. Go through them, see what resonates with you and be prepared for uh, when the next time some discussions about AI are occurring around you in your workplace or, you know, for your projects. That's great advice. One last thing. So you mentioned at the beginning that you'd lived in six countries. I only counted five. Uh, which one are we missing? <laughs> We're missing one before I even uh, went to vet school. Uh, I went for a high school exchange to Holland, to the Netherlands. And I spent a year in the, the Netherlands in a host family going to high school there. And actually, this was the first country where I ever uh, visited a veterinary faculty. My chemistry teacher had some connections in the veterinary faculty, and I was 16 at the time. So uh, since I was 12, I already knew I'm going to be a vet. So obviously, I was telling this to everyone who wanted to know what I'm going to be in the future. And I told him, and he said, huh, I know these people at the faculty. I can arrange a visit for you. And this is where I first saw uh, an operation on a horse. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So now, now I'm curious of, of all of these countries that you've lived in. I, I got to think, you know, Poland, since that's where you were born, is probably your favorite. But of the others, uh, which one was your favorite to, to live in? There is no favorite. So okay. like you say, Poland, it's going to be always my background, my heritage, and this is going to be my reference country. But in each of these countries, there were, there were things that I disliked and there were things that I liked that you don't find in the other countries. So I love to travel, but, uh, and I like, it's always a challenge to go uh, to a new country and to figure out your way. But mm -hmm. I don't believe there is a country that is better than others. Obviously, we're talking about countries that are more or less on um, the same developmental level. There is not really any hardship you have to endure in any of those countries. So let's say this is the same ballpark. I don't believe there is one better than the other. They're all different. And some aspects of them may be more annoying or less annoying uh, to you. Now it's the US. Now uh, it's going to be for longer because this is where my family is, my, my kids and my husband. And, but I will always be going back to Poland. And I hope we as a family can also go to some other country to do a kind of sabbatical or to give my family also this experience that I have had. Dr. Alexandra Zurov, thank you very much. This has been very fascinating. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be your guest. Great big thanks to Dr. Alexandra Zurov. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani, where we talk about her book, The Queen of All Poisons. You're a big proponent of pathologists being more visible. And obviously that's something you do in your own work. Why was it important to show Dr. Robinson doing this the same type of thing? I think that scene introduces um, to the reader a little bit about what pathologists do. And again, through all the books that I'm writing, I try to explain and show uh, what pathologists do in the real world. So I think, as you said, they should be more visible. I don't think that many patients or the public in general still understand uh, how pathologists contribute to their health care. It might be getting a little bit better, but it's not where I would like it to be. Mm -hmm. I think most 
what the public knows about pathologists. It's what they've seen on television or in film. And that's very one dimensional and it's not always accurate. So right. in that scene, you know, Lily sort of talks a little bit about all the things that pathologists can do. And, you know, you know that I, that line from the book where pathologists are the invisible thread in the weave of healthcare, they confirm the diagnosis for better or for worse. Yeah, Lily says that, you know, and hopefully at the end of reading Queen of All Poisons, the reader also has a better understanding of pathology in general. You can hear more from Dr. Magnani in episode number 35 of the People of Pathology podcast. And by the way, the sequel to The Queen of All Poisons called The Power of Poison just came out on March 24th. Uh, I had the honor of being a pre-reader for that, which was a lot of fun. You should definitely check out the new book. I really enjoyed it. One thing Dr. Zuroff mentioned in the episode today that I think bears repeating is when it comes to digital pathology, we need to educate ourselves about it. And while I don't think it will ever replace any of us really, it will be a valuable and powerful tool that I think will help us better serve patients, not only in our own communities, but around the world. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including Dr. Zuroff's blog and also her podcast. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and maybe you know someone who might be interested in digital pathology, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.